Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. We will cut right to the chase, and I'll tell you why I, Nick Shalna, am unqualified to be on the podcast today that I host. Uh, we have with us not only Dr. Mike Sherrard, the new president of the C.S. Lewis Society. Mike, how are you? Dude, I am not a doctor yet. Get your facts right. Right from the get-go, you're wrong here. That's coming. But go ahead, Nick. I'm sorry to interrupt you already. So we have Mr. Mike Sherrard, the new president of the C.S. Lewis <laughs> Society. But we are also very grateful to have on the distinguished research professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy at Liberty University, the historian and New Testament scholar who has changed countless minds about the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ through his books such as The Case for the Resurrection, Evidence for the Historical Jesus, and his most recently published book, Risen Indeed, in addition to his many lectures and debates. And if you think this is a long bio, you should have seen the one I started with, because this is conservative. <laughs> but we have with us Dr. Gary Habermas. Thanks for joining us, and how are you, Dr. Gary? I am doing well. And where are you? Are you you're in Virginia, right? I am in Virginia, and I had a major uh, computer problem last night today that took three hours to solve. So I'm just glad I'm here. You're here. All right. And we're glad for that. Uh, and Dr. Mike, how are things in Atlanta? Dude, you keep calling me Dr. Mike. And <laughs> okay. I mean, I guess I could just let you do that, but I'll get it. Mike, get how are things in Atlanta? <laughs> Atlanta, Atlanta, we're, we're doing good. We're covered in pollen right now. And so, uh, I'm sure I'm going to be just sneezing all over the place, but, uh, thanks for, thanks for what you do, Nick. Thanks for having me on here. And Dr. Havermas, man, it's, it's great to have you with us here. You have been very kind to me over the years, uh, just in simple ways, writing a kind endorsement for my first book, uh, Relational Apologetics. I'm, I'm a 30-year-old guy. I have already benefited from your work at this point, and, and you writing that endorsement just was, was huge. But, but more importantly than that, about six years ago, almost, almost exactly six years ago, uh, I'm, I'm, I've, I was a pastor for the last 10 years before coming on with the C.S. Lewis Society, taking the roles of president. So I'm a young guy and a mom and her daughter-in-law were tragically killed by a drunk driver. And I'm, I'm like, what am I, what am I going to do? How am I going to preach? This is right around Easter time. It's the week before Easter. And what, what do I give my church? Um, what do I give them from the pulpit? And I'm in my office and I'm praying and I turn around on my bookshelf and I see your book, uh, The Risen Jesus and Our Future Hope. I pop open that book and you have a chapter in that book dedicated to um, the account of when you lost your wife, Debbie. And it just, it helped me immensely. And then just sending you a short email, you responded really quick with some, uh, just some very compassionate words and, and good sound advice that I used and uh, helped me minister to my congregation at the time. So I'm just thrilled to have you on. Your work from a scholarly standpoint is top notch, but it doesn't just stay on the bookshelves and in the academy. It is very helpful to the church and it's been very helpful to me. So as we get going, let me flatter you and just tell you how much I've, I've appreciated and benefited from your work. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. I was just going to say, I told my PhD students, it's all about ministry. So 
We can have all the evidence in the world. We can have all of everything. But if we're not touching people, if we're not making people think, I like Craig, Greg Kokel's comment. It's not like if you don't, if someone doesn't become a Christian, you're a failure. It's not like that at all. Greg, I love Greg's comment that he likes to put stones in people's shoe so that they remember them afterwards. So, I mean, that's ministry too. So, Mike, if there was anything there that helped that couple, I'm just absolutely tickled to death. I think that's what we should all be about. Yeah, well, we appreciate. I appreciate it very much. Now, Dr. Gary, I know you've spent several, I mean, while we're on this topic, you've spent several decades uh, or more writing extensively about not only the resurrection, but near-death experiences and doubt and so on and so forth. Uh, what is your motivation for that? My motivation, it's changed and it's gotten much more serious over the years because it started out, <laughs> it's funny, I'll do an interview and I do a lot of doubt, like you said, and people say, now why'd you get into the resurrection? Let me guess. You did it to bless people and get them through doubt. And I and I will say, uh, no. I wished I were that altruistic. But I started because I went through 20 years of rather serious doubt off and on. In fact, at one point, this is, this is in print, so it's not a secret, but there was one point after my PhD. So I was not some some people say I almost walked away from my faith, and you say, when was that? And they say I was 10 years old, or I was 18 years old. I'm not saying you can't know anything at 18. I was reading Rudolf Bultmann when I was 17. So, I mean, you <laughs> you can do that stuff. But I had a PhD, and I at least felt like I was walking away from the faith hmm. and almost uh, became a Buddhist. So my doubt was pretty profound. So I didn't start that way. I was doing it selfishly in a way to answer my own questions. Then as time went on, I started seeing people was really responding. Like Mike just made that point. We didn't rehearse that ahead of time. So you surprised me, Mike, and I'm really glad to hear that. And as I, about in the nineties, that's still 25 years ago, um, more than that, I started realizing that if this is meeting people's needs, that's what floats mm. my boat. And as the time's gone on, it's more and more serious that since I get all kinds, thousands of emails telling me they've been helped, I'm thinking, wow, that's better than this or that. I want, I want to do this. And the ministry comes in all forms. Doubt Christians. I get non-Christians writing to me. Mm. I get skeptics writing to me. And and so ministry comes in all forms. That's my heartbeat today is how can this be used? Although it started out the other way around, how can I use it? <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's – in a lot of Christianity, there's kind of an anti-intellectual uh, bias or whatever that they think that, you know, knowledge only puffs up and it doesn't translate <laughs> into anything practical. It causes us to be unloving. And, of course, that's not that's not the case. And – uh, your work, I think, is a, is a really good example of that. Do you are there any stories from your years of ministry that really just stand out? And I know this is another on the spot kind of question. We didn't re we didn't rehearse any of this. Um, is there anything in your years of ministry that just stand out to you as a "this is why I do what I do" kind of kind of moment? Yeah, every once in a while, I'm thinking about one in particular, but there's a lot of them that are like this. Um, one guy, and I don't know about all the ways social media but he tweeted or something and it was sent to me but <clears throat> he said i've been an atheist all my life i studied the minimal facts argument 
and I can no longer deny it. I've become a Christian. It's been about a year, so I've minimally, I stood a minimal test of time, still doing it, and uh, I'm happy for the resurrection evidence. Every once in a while, I get one of those. I just got one last week, uh, and now I'm dealing with um, uh, a young mother who's going through a situation not exactly like yours, Mike, but with similarities. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. when people write to you and say, I, I got an email a little while back, and, and this is just not a single one. A lot of them are like this, but one of them sticks in my mind. It's probably a few months ago. And the person said, help, help, help. I'm hanging out by my fingernails. And if I don't hear from you, I really think that in, a, in two more days, I will no longer be a Christian. And that's how the email started. Help, help. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. And so those kind of things, especially when it doesn't take, many times it does not take real long to help. I have two, two of my students, former students, one's just finishing his PhD. Wow. And the other one is a pastor who studied apologetics and now is in a very fruitful ministry and has been in one crisis counseling type things for 20 years. Both of them now take my doubt cases, and I pass them on to them because they're very time. They can be very time consuming, very time consuming. Here's the question that scares me the most from mm-hmm. people: a phone call or an email that says, "I'm having serious doubts for the last three years. Could you please call me? I will. I know this won't take more than ten or fifteen minutes. That is actually absolutely." paralyzing email to me because generally (laughs) if you answer the person's questions this is so common what i'm telling you is the rule i've had over a thousand conversations with people like that the rule is if you let them take the time they want the first 10 to 15 minute conversation will be at least two hours and they're going to want to call you every other week for the next five weeks it'll be at least an hour each (laughs) i'm not i'm not exaggerating one little Mm -hmm. bit so these two guys I turn them over to them. One of them has already set up a counseling practice that's totally for doubters, and the other one did something similar. And uh, so I just had my case. I asked them, do you want to talk to one of my guys? And they said, absolutely. And I turn them over to them, and now I have these disciples who work through it with them, and they're both very good at it. Well, I know I I do want to get into doubt here, and uh, I don't know if we want to do that now or if we want to come back later, but uh, since I brought it up, just— you, you've done a lot of work on doubt, and, and we definitely want to get to evidence for the resurrection, and, and it certainly connects to talking about doubt. But how would you describe – and oh gosh, for us in ministry, those that work with young adults, we, we see how doubt is really just pushing them away. Oh, and, sure. And seemingly, seemingly no one's answering their questions. But can you just describe maybe the nature of doubt and what are some good practices in dealing with doubt? Yeah. <clears throat> I've got – I'll start this way. I've got three books on doubt. Two of them are on my website, GaryHabermas.com, and they're free of charge. People can take them. I mean, they probably shouldn't print them with their name on it, but oh, man. <laughs> you can do what they want. <laughs> they they take my material. They use it in sermons. They print it in notes. Um, but I'm just saying two of them are online, and I would have a third one up there, um, but I just have been too lazy to get it on my website. But but uh, one is called Dealing with Doubt, and it's more theoretical. 
with what goes on. The second one is called the Thomas Factor, using your doubts to grow closer to God. And that's the, those two are on the site. And the third one is a the most commonly the most common way that I get the question today, and that is why is God so silent? My prayers hit the ceiling, they don't go anywhere. So I've got a book where the subtitle is what to do when it seems like God's ignoring you. Well, God's giving you the silent treatment. Mm-hmm. So it's on silence. So in these books, here's the move I make, Mike. Um, I think there's three kinds of, at least three species of doubt. The first one's factual or philosophical. I'll usually just say factual. Factual or philosophical. The second one's emotional. The third one's volitional. The first one is simple. Now, not simple to answer, because these guys are often the headiest, and they're the ones who are asking data. Is that genocide in the Old Testament? Uh, how do you know Jesus raised the dead in light of David Hume? Um, but here's why it's simple. It's simple the way a clean break on your ankle is. When mm. I, I've been, I played sports all my life, and um, mostly hockey and football, but, but the only three times I've been hurt uh, badly, we're all playing basketball, which is, I play basketball in college, although don't take that to heart. I was horrible, but, um, but, but I, I cracked the ankle and, and tore it twice. And I was in three casts. Okay. Here's what my doctor said to me. He said, if you get a choice between a break and a tear, a real tear, not when kids say I sprained my ankle. I mean, the kind where you get huge swelling in 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, you take the break every time. Because a break is simple and a ligament is compound. It'll never heal. Totally. All right. That's the difference between factual and emotional doubt. Mm, factual doubt. Um, Mike McConaughey came into Mike's my example. And I, I this is one of the first times I ever used him. I didn't use his name. And he told me, start using it. I don't care. You're not bothering me. <laughs> and But the first time we met, he stuck his head in my office. And he said, hey, can you help me with this? And I said, well, I'll sure try. And he goes, well, what do you do about this, 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 and this? And I said, well, Mike, you know, this, 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 and this. And it lasted about five minutes, and he went just like this. This is Mike's personality, too, Mike Lacona. But he said, cool, yeah, that does it, thanks. And he walked out. That's factual doubt. It can be heavy, heavy stuff. But factual doubt's not emotional, so it's not a ligament tear, it's a bone break. Mm. And you mm. put a bone break in a cast or a walking boot, and you're good to go most of the time. Um, and that's factual. Emotional doubt is far more common and far more painful. In fact, it's the only one of the three that, it, for, any intent and purpo- for all intent and purposes, is the only one that's painful. Mm. And I'll just define the third one real fast. Volitional doubt, I'll give you the, it's, a, it's the largest range of what happens, but the, I'll give you the example of the textbook volitional doubter, um, a guy who was mad at God. I, I teamed up with a clinical psychologist, and so we, I should, I say we, I didn't do any of it. He actually gave people tests, and the primary psychological response that uh, uh, loads on volitional doubt is anger. The number one that loads up on emotional doubt as you'd probably all guess, is anxiety. And the factual doubt, they probably, they don't have to have distraught emotional states. But so the second one is anxiety. The third one's depression. Now with the volitional doubter, here's my classic case. Uh, So-and-so used to be a leader in your church. This guy did everything a lay person could do. 
He was an elder, was a deacon, was a Sunday school teacher, was on every board he could be, always willing to serve. And all of a sudden, his family's coming to church, but he's not. And it's not that just that he's not going to your church. He's not going to church anymore. And you're a good fishing buddy or hunting buddy of his, so you stop by to see him. You go, what's going on? You haven't walked away from Christianity, have you? And he, and he says, walked away like it's not true? No, I think it's true. Well, dude, why aren't you back in church? Uh, we're missing you after you know a few years of this and 30 years of service. <laughs> what's going on? He goes, well... Let me just say, I think it's all true, but uh, God and I had a falling out, and I just kind of live right now like I wished he would stay in his half of the universe, and I want to stay in my half of the universe. Mm -hmm. And the problem with a volitional doubter is how do you motivate somebody who doesn't want to be motivated? The, emo the emotional doubter is by far the most common category. I would say 70 to 80% of all cases. And there's two ways to tell emotional doubt uh, that I think. One is, I ask this question right up front, does your doubt hurt? Mike, when he, Mike Lacona, when he stuck his head in my office door, he would have said, heck no, it's already answered. I'm <laughs> right. gone. I got stuff yeah. to do today. Yeah. Um, and the volitional doubter would say, I never, the volitional doubter would say, well, let me just remind you, I didn't ask you the question in the first place because I don't care. Mm -hmm. So no, it doesn't hurt. But the emotional doubter, they're in a lot of pain. I had a lady years ago uh, say to me, if you can solve my doubt, I would be willing to cut off my right arm. I would trade you my right arm for ending my doubt. And I just wow. thought she was joking, or at least making an analogy. And I said, and I said, yeah, 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 I, I get you. She goes, no, 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 you're not understanding. I'm really, really serious. If I can have my arm cut off and no more doubt, I would take it without thinking about it. That's emotional doubt. The other way emotional doubt is manifest is with what if questions. And here's a discussion with the what if doubter. Um, I understand you got some evidence for the resurrection. Yeah, like over a hundred, uh, the way critics think. I mean, little pieces. I don't mean separate arguments, but little pieces of data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what if it's not true? I go, what are you asking? Hmm. Anything can be other than what it seems. That's the nature of the world is that things change. But but what are you asking? Well, I just want to know. I've heard some of your evidence, but I wonder, what if it's not true? So I start answering like this. They'll say, what if it's not true? And I'll say, what if it is true? <laughs> and they'll say, all you're saying is, is it may be true. I said, well, then you missed the point, because all you've said is it may not be oh, true. You're good. only making an nice. assertion. You're not making an argument. What if it's not true is not an argument. That's just an assertion. And it's the same level as my going to church and saying, he's risen, like we did Sunday. He's risen indeed. It's an affirmation. I didn't give evidence. Oh, well, then that person finally gets the point. But they keep asking the what if questions. But the what if questions are not grounded. Um, there's no reason they think, well, I heard somebody say there were UFOs. Yeah, let's not get there yet because that's not really relevant on this topic. You know, it's like they could go anywhere, yeah, but it's yeah. not data. So the person in the middle is an emotional doubters. And I do it this order because it often starts factually. And when they don't get their questions answered, it morphs into emotional doubt. And advanced doubt is volitional doubt. Oz Guinness calls that kind. He calls it a time to warn. 
if this guy's your hunting buddy, you're the you're the guy who's designated to go talk with him because he knows you. And he might not talk to anybody else, but he knows you'll be honest. I I know of a guy, a testimony. Um, when I met him, I heard a story about him before I met him, and then I finally met him. He wanted nothing to do with the church. And uh, his pastor went to see him. And he said to the pastor, okay, look, you come over a lot. I listen to your baloney. I've had enough of this. You're either going to get up and walk out of my house right now, or I'm going to bodily throw you out of the house. Now make your choice, because this conversation's over. Pastor got up and left. Pastor didn't quit. He kept coming back. This guy who was so hard, he was kind of a man's man. He was a he was a, a guide, a hunting and fishing guide, uh, and he was about he, he was about that all the time. Beautiful boat. He was out there all the time, and guys flocked around it because they they loved the guy. Pastor didn't give up. He kept coming back. And guess what? The guy became a Christian. Hmm. I met the guy when I went to his church. And here's what he said to me. Hey, I've got a I've got a good boat. I'm on a, I've got a really good body of water here, very, very well known body of water, bass, bass lake. I want to pick you up while you're here on a Saturday before you leave. I will take you out all day. My guiding, my my bait, my gas, all I want to do is ask you questions. And we did that a few times. And I always ask, I always ask about him. He's been on fire for the Lord for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And you cannot ask him to go hunting or fishing unless you are prepared to hear the gospel. <laughs> and he's going to drive it home over and over again. That's why that pastor. That's why it's important if you're the guy's best friend, you don't let them go when they say, I don't want to talk about this. Mm -hmm. Only you maybe can keep it up. That's a volitional guy. So because of those two personalities on either side, you can understand why you've got to get involved with emotional doubters, but you don't have to invite yourself into their life. They will beg you to get involved in their life if if they know you know what you're doing. But that's really helpful. That's a rundown. And And the resurrection is... Yeah, no, that's it's very helpful, and it's helped me in in pastoral ministry. Just knowing, and, and of course, apologetic ministry too. Just not assuming you know what the source of their doubt is. If it's mm-hmm. if it's factual, they need an answer. If it's emotional, they're anxious about something, and an answer isn't maybe the first thing they need. And if it's a I don't tr- trust this, a volitional issue, it's it's totally different and. Just a good practice for the apologist, one is growing in knowledge, is before you just charge headlong into your great soundbite answer that you know is just going to bring about a conversion you know, moment, it's just to ask some questions and to really seek out and, and help to understand better yep. what is this source of doubt. So it's, it's good on the practitioner yep. side, the minister or the apologist, but it's also good for anybody listening who is currently going through doubt. It's just to go, what, what is my... What is my doubt? Mm-hmm. Are there some questions I have that I just need a good answer for? Is there a what if component of this that I'm just really yeah. anxious about? Or is there, a, I don't want it to be true element of even if this were all true, I just, I don't want it. I don't want to follow Jesus. And to reflect on those things is is really key for, for the doubters. I'll tell you guys something real fast, just to show you how profound this is. First of all, the volitional doubter won't come to you. Not the true case. There's some baby volitional doubters that still have an emotional element, and they're hurting, and they'll come. But they are volitional doubters, but they're hurting. But the 
the real emotional doubters, especially men, especially men, they think they need evidences. And you can sit there and overdo it. And you can do, here's 10 of the best evidences for the resurrection. And I'm going to tell you what happens if the guy's in your office. He stands up and he goes, whoa, that's fantastic. I feel like I'm top of the mountain. I feel no one's going to argue me out of this. Man, I wished you were around 10 years ago. See you later. He walks out the door. He tells you later, that night I was on top of the world. Next day, 80% on top of the world. Two days later, 60% on top of the world. A week later, 30% on top of the world. And like a week, week and a half later, he's in your office. I'm in shambles. I feel like God's abandoned me and I'm going, now what's going on? Here's a rule of thumb. Emotional, answering emotional doubts can help. Answering factual doubts can help the emotional doubter, but it's almost never going to stick with them. With emotional doubters, you've got to switch fields and say, just remember when we get there, there's a lot of evidence for the resurrection, but I want to tell you how to deal with your emotions. And it's a tough subject because I hated psychology when I was in school. It's the only thing I went back and studied after I did my PhD. I studied with some major secular psychologists. I learned some techniques. I use them all the time. And believe me, they work. People charge $200 an hour to teach people how to do this. And it works. So you can give them, yeah, but all I want to know is how come there's different women who went to the tomb? Uh, Let's just put that on hold. I'm not going to help you unless I help you with your emotion. (laughs) We'll come back to the women. But it's not going to help you. So you have to learn to help people with their emotions. Let me, while we're on this, since we may never come back to it, let me recommend one book. It's a bestseller, so you know it's popularly written. It's for lay people. It's by William Backus and Marie Chapian. I'm not sure if that's how she pronounces her last name, but C-H-A-P-I-A-N, Chapian or Chapian. It's called Telling Yourself the Truth. And the first three chapters tell you how to do it. And the last, the rest of the book, it's short, maybe 140 pages. The rest of the book applies those steps to anger, anxiety, depression, procrastination, anything that's an emotional whatever. But you learn how to handle your emotions. C.S. Lewis made a famous statement in Mere Christianity. He said, if you're a doubter, you've got to learn to tell your emotions where to get off. And so Mm. emotional doubt, nobody wants to get into it because Mm. the person is really emotional sometimes. And secondly, most people are not prepared to say, they'll say, I'll give you another evidence, but they don't know how to tell them to turn off their emotions. Well, I hate to leave you with a cliffhanger, but we decided to break this episode into two parts, the first part on doubt and the second part on evidences for the resurrection. So make sure you come back tomorrow for part two of this interview with Dr. Gary Habermas. And you're also going to hear a few questions at the end, including... Uh, what Gary Habermas said to Jordan Peterson about the resurrection during a lunch that they had together. So please come back and join us tomorrow. Share this episode with somebody who you know. Uh, Doubt is such an important topic for us to be uh, educated in. It's something that everybody faces at one point or another. So please share this episode on doubt and what Dr. Gary Habermas had to say. Well, thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. We'll see you back here tomorrow.